Welcome to Media in the Mix, the only podcast produced and hosted by the School of Communication at American University. Join us as we create a safe space to explore topics and communication at the intersection of social justice, tech, innovation, and pop culture. Today, we welcome one of the School of Communication's photography experts, Professor Lena Jayaswell. Lena Jayaswell is a documentary filmmaker, award-winning photographer, and professor in the School of Communication at American University, where she is the director of the new BA in photography. Jayaswell was the school's first inclusion officer and associate dean from 2019 to 2022. Her photography and film work often deals with the intersections of being Indian and American. This work has been nationally recognized in galleries around the country, including solo shows at the Gandhi Memorial Center and International Visions Gallery. Jayaswell has photographs in group collections with the Society of Photographic Education's Multicultural Caucus at the Center for Photography, On Foco Lightwork, Photo Center Northwest, and the Asian American Art Center. Her award-winning films have also been screened in various film festivals around the country. Crossing Lines was picked up for national distribution by NETA and has been broadcast on over 100 PBS affiliates across the country. The film has won many international and national awards, including the Gracie Allen Award, and is being distributed by New Day Films. Her latest film, Mixed, a collaboration with Professor Katie Borum, explores what it means to be mixed race in America, 50 years after the historic landmark Supreme Court decision, Loving v. Virginia, which made interracial marriage legal. Jayaswal is also working with artist Monica Jahan Bose on a feature documentary about climate change called Rising Up to Climate Change, Storytelling with Saris. Her latest film, Dreaming Green, profiles Monica's work. This film was part of the Futures exhibition that was part of the reopening of the Smithsonian's Arts and Industry Building. She was one of eight documentary filmmakers to contribute to this exhibit. Thank you so much, Lena, for joining us on the podcast today. It always does feel very full circle to me when I'm able to sit down with my professors and just, you know, mentors that had such an impact on my career and taught me so much. So this is really awesome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Okay, so what I like to do at the start is hone in on everyone's expertise a little bit. And I know you have experience in both the film world and the photography world, but I would love to know a little bit of, about how you know you see art and kind of what drew you to practice it. And then what is it about capturing a still image in photography? Sure, so I knew from a very early age, I was in third grade when I decided I was gonna be a photographer and I had incredibly supportive parents who said, Okay, um, we don't know what this is about, but sure. Yeah. And um, part of it was be- it it came about around the same time or uh, shortly after my parents migrated to the United States. Mm-hmm. And so um, my dad was a amateur photographer, so I just loved carrying around his cameras and like playing with the buttons and you know hearing the shutter go off. So I was intrigued by that, and I always wanted to be an artist, but I have no discernible talent in in any other field. And because photography is mechanical and it's about training your eye and seeing, um, it was the one place that I felt like I could you know, even if I didn't naturally have the talent right away, it was something I could learn. And that's one thing that I can tell my students because it is not natural for some folks right away. And so I started taking classes. I made pinhole cameras, you know, right around when I was 
10 or 11 and started just photographing. And it was a way for me to sort of understand American culture at the same time as Mm. Indian culture because we were immigrants. We were the first immigrants in the small community in Ohio. And having the camera allowed me to participate but also gave me protection. To, and, and it allowed me yeah. to, even back then, just to kind of watch right. and learn. So yeah. that's what interested me first in observations. In, yeah. And can you, just for anyone listening who doesn't know, can you go into what like a pinhole camera is? Like when oh, you sure. say, I created pinhole cameras. Sure. So pinhole cameras are the most basic of all basic cameras. Anybody could make them with household objects you have there. It's basically just a light tight container. We used oatmeal cans back then. <laughs> we spray, you spray it inside black with black paint and it's very dark. In the cover, you create just a little dot of a hole, which becomes sort of your aperture. We used paper darkroom paper, but we'd expose directly into the darkroom paper and then take the paper and develop it into the darkroom. That's really cool. So the most simplest basic camera. That's awesome. But really cool that you can create that. That's so cool. Okay. So for anyone listening, any prospective students, students that we have that uh, are thinking about taking an MA or MFA in in film or arts or whatever it may be, um, I actually did the MFA program. And we used to have a mandatory three-week boot camp. I remember when I first signed up for the program and I read that, I was very intimidated. I was scared. I didn't know the equipment that we were going to be using. And the purpose of this was to familiarize ourselves with things that we'd be using in the program, whether you'd be going in for photography or film or videography or cinematography or, or lighting, if that's your passion. We learned everything. So it was like an overload of information. However, the one thing that intimidated me the most, which has now actually full circle moment, has helped me the most in the jobs that I've gotten because I've freelanced a lot of videography. I freelanced a lot of jobs where you don't have time to really fix your camera or set up a a shot or you know whatever it may be I just had to move 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 and it was you know what's your shutter speed what's this what's that and so all of that terminology but really it was using a manual camera that helped me understand how to set up a better composition now actually that three-week boot camp has become a mandatory first semester class and Mm -hmm. that's amazing because it was so beneficial for us to understand manually how to do things rather than going right to of course today you can I mean snap a picture anywhere you you know autofocus I mean it's just it's very easy I I don't want to say easy but it's very convenient so can you explain why it's important for us to kind of go through that that manual work so that we could better understand where we're sure. At. So we start our program. Um, we start our classes with film photography. So students are shooting on manual 35 millimeter cameras on film. And then we move into digital in the semester long classes. In the boot camp class that you took, we just did only darkroom and, yeah. and film photography. And the reason behind it is I think that everybody has, almost everybody, you know, who's privileged has a phone that has a camera attached to it. And so I get a lot of students coming to me and saying, oh, look at my portfolio, you know, and it's all just iPhone shots or pictures that they've done on their phone. And while they may understand some kind of composition, some kind of lighting, what they don't understand is exposure. Mm. If you're going to be a filmmaker, you really need to look at and understand that. And so shooting on film, film is expensive. You have 36 shots. You have to be very careful in the shots you choose. Mm -hmm. I think it makes you slow down. And everything in this world is telling us to go, 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 go. And to then have a film camera in your hand and you're looking at your exposure and you're looking at the light. I mean, there's nothing better than beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous light. Following the light, 
understanding the light, seeing how it changes and transforms different during different times of day, when you're uh, with a certain background, if you have certain colors pop out. I mean, lighting is everything. And so when you slow down, you can actually look at the light mm -hmm. and you can focus on the light and understand the light. And so what I want our students to do is to walk into a room and know where the light sources are, understand what that's going to do for their subject. And is that adding to the feeling that they're taking or is it distracting from it? And if it is, if it's distracting, then how do we change this? How do we compensate for that? So I always start off my first class by saying, like, lighting is everything. And it really is. And the other thing that I wanted to sort of stress is when I talk to prospective students, I ask them, you know, I ask the big groups, I'm like, okay, pull out your cameras, look at your camera roll, mm -hmm. how many photos do you have taken, right? And so I think we had somebody last time had 32,000 or something on their camera roll, wow. right? You know, we were getting numbers higher, 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 higher. And I, and I said, why do you keep these photos? Why mm -hmm. do you take these photos? And it's because photography is incredibly important. It's not just snap, 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 and here's a couple pictures of my friends, but it's our history, it's our memories, it's our family, it's our loved mm -hmm. ones. It tells a story. And so the power of photography is incredible, and that's why we want storytellers to start off with that first. Yes. I vividly remember an exercise we did in your class. It was the portrait photography in black and white, and that was the first time I truly understood how lighting can affect a subject. You would have us put one of our classmates. It was just someone we knew, and um, whether we chose to highlight like a tattoo with their light or we are choosing to highlight a part of their face that like told a story or had a certain emotion. It, it was the first time I, I really learned how lighting can affect a subject. And that really took, I took that into film so much because scenes change based on lighting. I mean, lighting really does tell a story. I completely agree. And it wasn't until we really did darkroom photography, everything was in black and white, that I, I actually remember people around me being like, oh, I get it because you really could see the light. It's hard sometimes when it's in color and you think something might be a perfect amount of exposure and then you're like, oh, this is overexposed. And, and you get distracted, right? Right. Yeah. right. And I think also for a lot of folks coming into the field right now, you know, everybody's used to being on your computers and using Photoshop or other image editing software. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of screen time. And yeah. so I know when the first time a student puts their print in the developer and it starts to pop up, there is this magic that happens and they may not say it or get excited about it, but I know it and I know it. I get excited for them. There is this real magical moment and you're not allowed to have your phones in the dark room. And so you really have to leave the outside world outside yeah. Yeah. and just be like, you know, I know this sounds corny, but be zen with the moment that yeah. you're in right there and then with your image and yourself and, you know, and taking some yeah. time. For like video editing, I love to be in a lab with just nobody around and you're kind of yep. like noise canceling headphones. I felt like the darkroom was the same yeah. way. It was such a nice escape. One of those very few photos, by the way, I still have my darkroom photos actually framed and like they're, I'm so proud of them because I've never done that before. Yeah. Uh, when they first started to develop, and I remember when you and Sean taught us how to manually make edits mm -hmm. in the dark room, yep, there were a few cheers in there because <laughs> we were like, this is amazing. Everything, it was mind-blowing. Yeah, everything in Photoshop is taken from the dark room. Right. You know, it's right. just, you know, you're burning and you're dodging. It's just and switched over. Right. Exactly. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, good times. Yeah. I definitely still have those photos. That's great. Okay, so your project mixed. Yes. 
after having been kind of in the U.S. for as long as you have, being in an interracial marriage, I remember you talked about that even when we were in your class. What does being mixed in this country mean to you? And has it changed over time? My One of my latest documentaries with another professor in the School of Communication, Professor Katie Borum, mm-hmm. who um, is the director of the Center for Media and Social Impact. Yep. She and I both have mixed race children. And we didn't know each other very well other than the fact that we were both colleagues. And I had done a piece called I'm Not the Nanny. I did a little video installation piece called I'm Not the Nanny because Mm -hmm. I had, whenever I would go places with my son, people would assume, especially here in D.C., that Mm -hmm. I was the nanny. I'm the brown woman with this fairly light-skinned kid. Yeah. Dark-haired but light-skinned kid. And, you know, I had people coming up to me and asking me things like, well, who do you work for? And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean I work? professor at American University, you know, and they they just assumed that I I was the nanny. And um, his father, who's blonde and blue eyed, would take him to the park and people would fawn all over him and being like, what a great daddy is. And he is a great dad, but that doesn't mean that I'm not a great mom and that I'm the nanny. Right. Right. Um, So I just started to explore these ideas. And Katie, Katie heard about it. And she um, showed me pictures of her kids and was like, these are my kids. I've been wanting to do a documentary about this. And she's got a storied history in, in the documentary world. And so we just started talking. And yeah. the more we talked, the more we recognized that how we were of the same kind of mindset, but just yeah. from different perspectives, one white mom, one brown mom. And then we just wanted to explore the film. So we first started off just doing a typical kind of documentary where we were not involved in it. We were just asking questions and then um, we would we and then we cut it together. And then we had um, one of Katie's friends. She introduced me to him. He became our executive producer, Jeffrey Tuckman. And he sat down and was like, why are you telling this story? And we're like, well, because our kids are being then like, why are you not in it? They're like. Because we don't want to be, you know, but it just made sense. And multiple people at that time, trusted souls had asked us, like, why are you all not in this film? This film is about two moms trying to figure because our kids at that point were pretty young. Yeah. And so they weren't versed in identity. It's amazing to me how early they learned that. But at that point, they weren't. So then we shifted the focus and made this journey film about two moms um, going across America in search of mixed race stories. When we started the film, there was the very little representation in popular culture of, of about mixed race. In popular culture, you could find pockets of it, of course, everywhere. But like at the time, only Parenthood had a interracial couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, Modern Family, I think, was the other show. Yeah. Uh, my son, who's half Indian and half white, we had to look to Nickelodeon, Sanjay and Craig, which is a cartoon, mm-hmm. to find representation, yeah. right? So there wasn't a lot of that. We weren't seeing them in advertising and things like right. that. Now... There's an incredible shift. And I remember I'd be watching shows with my son and we'd see an interracial family or a mixed race kid and we'd be like kind of like, oh, why? Look at that. You know, and now it's like everywhere you turn there, there's some kind of representation. So we can see the shift happening, but we just have to look at the U.S. census. So it was was just in recent time that you were only allowed to mark more than one box on your identity in the Mm -hmm. census. And so because of that, the multiracial population is growing like triple the time that it was noted before. And so those changes are happening, but we haven't, you know, outside of some, we have a couple of, we've interviewed a couple of um, psychologists who study the issue of mixed race. We interviewed some authors and some entrepreneurs and business people, and but mostly we interviewed families. Mm-hmm. And so that to me was really the interesting part. It's like, well, I really genuinely wanted to know, like, what is my son's identity formation going to be? Right. And how can I... Uh, make sure he feels that he can express 
any part of his identity when he wants to with, without kind of doing detrimental harm to him. Mm-hmm. We also wanted to celebrate these ideas of what it means to be mixed race because often what we had heard in the 70s and things like, you know, that led to like why people didn't want interracial marriage to happen was like, oh, well, this is a bad thing. Your, your children won't know who they are and all of that kind of stuff. My mm-hmm. son is very very assured in his personality. And and we didn't want to show just that only the negative side of those things. Right, right. What do you think are lessons you've learned from your experience in the creative world or just in your career or are going through projects like these that you think also serves as a piece of wisdom that you'd like to pass down, especially to your kids? Sure. And I think this would, I would say this to the students is to lean into the vulnerability Mm. because my work is only, when when I started off making work, I sort of was like, I knew that that would be something that would probably be reachable or, you know, accessible to certain people. But it felt like a little bit of an act, right, because it was like put upon like, oh, I know I need to do this, but Mm -hmm. I don't really feel this. So when you lean into the vulnerability and you're being really your true authentic self, I think that's where you discover what you need to learn about the process. To me, making art, any kind of art, whether it's photography or filmmaking, it's a journey. Think of it as my therapy. Mm. It's me working through some kind of problem or issue or whether it's social justice issues or whether it's in my own personal life. It's me working through something. Right. And so it may not matter what the end product looks like, but it matters to me what I've learned along the way. Mm-hmm. So be being vulnerable and understanding that the, the journey may be more important than the actual end product. Right. It really is about the journey, kind of what you're going through, what, what message you want to tell. I started this career, I guess you could say, being like, I want to tell stories. I want to tell my stories. I want to tell stories of people that aren't able to mm-hmm. tell their stories, you know, and I feel like sometimes I forget that that is the goal and that is the path and I stray from the path a little bit and then I have to bring myself back and remember like there's a reason I'm doing this it's not just something I woke up one day and said you know I just want to do you know it's a hard hard industry it is so to have that will to have that why and your vulnerability even if you're not doing personal work your own vulnerability will come across when you're interviewing somebody Mm. and maybe you get them to say something that they didn't think that they felt comfortable saying at the beginning but because you're showing that it's this human interaction and you're vulnerable too that you may get something more deeper and heartfelt. Also, do you feel like you've seen a shift in the industry? And that could be, you know, positive, negative. But do you feel that there's that shift in in representation? I know we touched on that a little bit. Yeah, I think people are trying, right? And so certainly from 20 years ago when, when I was starting to make films and getting exhibitions and things, I was relegated to niche kind of work, Mm -hmm. right? There was this Washington Post article that they did where I think it says three point something percent of the artist population in the United States is Asian. So Mm -hmm. that's it. That's those are people who are making a living as an artist. It's three percent. Yeah. And so to me, I was like, that's a heavy weight uh, on representation because do they feel that they have to do work that is Asian inspired or like if you're a part of the queer community, do you always have to just do or tell stories of the queer community, you know, and maybe that pigeonholes some artists in ways or did those three percent get to be in the zeitgeist uh, because they weren't telling stories of Asian pop. So to me, those are a lot of the questions that are interesting. And I see that shift 
happening. Um, when I started teaching here, I had a lot of students come up to me and tell me like, well, my parents don't want me to f major in photography or filmmaking because they don't know, like, it's not going to give me money. It's not going to do that. And it was mostly women, of course, that, you know, I was hearing that from. Yeah. Uh, so to me, that shift is changing. And, you know, if we want to tell diverse stories, we need diverse people behind every single role yeah. around there. I think it's a good thing that people are ha being held accountable. I think the Me Too movement was fantastic for yeah. that. I think that Black Lives Matter, I think all of those things are really helping to shift and change the focus of what used to be the power. And now you see, you know, some films, they're being held accountable to how many diverse folks yeah. that they have that mm -hmm. are telling diverse stories, mm -hmm. right? And so we've all, we've all seen plenty of films about people of color that have been told by not people of color. Yeah. And so what kind of nuances are we missing right. from there? And I'll just tell this one quick example. I was watching the Michael Vick documentary on ESPN, and mm -hmm. it was shot by Stanley Nelson. I'm not a football person. I'm not a. I'm a huge dog lover. I have a. I have a little dog myself, and I just had been under this preconceived notion of what who Michael Vick was. Mm -hmm. But because Stanley Nelson, who is a member of the same community as the same racial community as Michael Vick, he told this story from a different perspective. Like all those years, I was vilifying Michael Vick. Just right. you know, all of that. And not to say that, you know, I'm pro dog fighting or anything like that. But now I suddenly understand because of the nuances of his storytelling, telling me about the culture, telling me about how Michael Vick grew up in a certain way that was sort of accepted. And yeah. then also looking at the white football owners and their reactions to like, well, this person just makes us money. We bet on it in a different way. Right. right. You know, it just gave me a, a perspective that I had not thought about. And it really shifted and changed my point of view, even at this age. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's important for us to have these powerful stories that are being told by the people. And so I love seeing that shift. And I think that that's more and more of what we're going to see. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I think, like you said, all of these movements have I think they domino effect in a positive way when people lean into the vulnerability. Yeah. So it's, you know, a lot of spaces that I've been in, I've had really great conversations with people that are also immigrants and have gone through the immigration process. But because you could look at me and then you hear my voice and you and you see grace and you don't assume. I mean, I'm Palestinian. Yeah. I don't think anyone has ever guessed that on the first try. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I get a lot of ethnicities thrown at yes. me um, before I have to say the correct one. Mm -hmm. So I also feel like there is. A big shift happening, like you said, sometimes on the screen with the stories that are being told, the people that are telling the stories. But it took me a while to realize that a lot happens behind the scenes as yeah. well. It's kind of this like realization that, um, especially as I got into pre-production more and, and that producer role, there's still so much work to do in that space because there's a lot of rooms I walk into and I am like, what, one of two, one of three, just women alone. Forget people of color, exactly. just women alone. Exactly. So I, I agree. There is a definite positive shift, especially as a Middle Easterner. Yeah. Seeing just us be represented in a light that's not negative is great. It's also very, at the same time, you know, if we don't have multiple voices coming from that, from the Arabic community or right. the Indian community, then you're only getting one perspective, right? right? And so then you just think, well, okay, well, uh, Deepa Mehta, I mean, maybe mm -hmm. people would know her, her mm -hmm. filmmaking work. But if she's the only one, her and Miranar are the only female filmmakers. But what about the stories that are not 
their stories, right? And what about the other perspectives that are coming in? And so that's why we need, it's it's great to have those ones that pop out, yeah. but we really need a whole lot more yeah. so that we can get a full story on that. That's true. And because I know a lot of times stories get really propped up in the United States. Ethnic stories get really propped up in the United States because they're sort of groundbreaking to them. But then when you hear from the people on the streets, they're like, no, that documentary was actually very problematic because <laughs> they didn't do this, this, and this. And, and yeah. while the rest of the world is celebrating yeah. them and they're becoming rising stars in the documentary world, the people who they who are there are right. saying, this is not what, right. this is not the story. This right. is not how it happened. Right. right. Or other things happen too. I mean, this is not just what we need to focus on. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Completely. And then can you talk a little bit going from Project Mix, can you talk a little bit about the um, storytelling with Saris? Sure. I That just intrigued me. I thought you could go a little bit. Sure. Yeah. That. So I just did a film for the, I was one of eight filmmakers, uh, documentary filmmakers asked to participate, put a proposal in, and it was accepted for the um, Smithsonian's reopening of the Arts and Industry Building. And oh. they were doing an exhibition called the Futures Exhibition. So within three minutes, I was asked to propose what what I thought the future could look like. Yeah. And so I have been collaborating with my friend, artist activist, Monica Jahan Bose, for probably about 10 years now. And she has started this project called Storytelling with Saris. She's a painter, printmaker, and then we started making films and she's doing she does art insta or she does insta video installations mm-hmm. as well. And what she does, she's Bangladeshi American and she her village in Bangladesh is threatened to be washed away um, because of the tides rising. rising. Yeah. And Monica is a, a fierce climate uh, justice activist. Yeah. And so um, she has worked with her village community, the women, they're these feminist performances, the women in Kathakali, to bring the saris, to make these saris, and then brings them here to do workshops, teaches people about climate um, justice and pledges that they could make that could help change global warming and the planet and so I've just been filming her and filming her installations you know her video pieces so she can turn them into installations Mm -hmm. and so she was the focus of my piece called Dreaming Green which I used for the Smithsonian project and it looked at how brown and black communities can work together to look at climate justice issues under wow. an artistic perspective. Mm-hmm. So That's led by so her. That's so cool. That's beautiful. I have a, just a question on the fly. Sure. I realize this is the first episode we've talked a little bit more about documentary sure. filmmaking, which is awesome. Can you just give maybe just like a few pieces of advice to remember when it comes to documentary filmmaking? Because we've talked so much about film and, sure. and that kind of fiction world. Sure. So the first thing with documentary is the story that you think you're going to tell is not the story that you'll end up telling. And lean into it and follow the journey and let things unfold the way that you did. Like yeah. the example I used with Mixed when we started filming mm-hmm. and it was going to be this real serious kind of documentary yeah. and then it became, you know, about us and our journey. The second thing is always keep the camera rolling because the best sound bites that you're going to get are when you're setting up the microphone, when you're getting, when they're walking after they're done with the interview and they're like, was that okay? Oh, I forgot to say this, this, and this. So always keep the camera rolling as much as you possibly can. And, you know, just as the photographer in me, always look at light. (laughs) No, that's uh, clearly what you're talking about. That's true. Sound, 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 sound is incredibly important. I have to represent yeah. Russell Williams if he would be upset if I didn't mention Gosh, sound so he used to always tell me you can't edit bad sound yeah Don't exactly think you can. and be- and bad sound can ruin a beautiful film I've taken this actually this I watched him in class one one day say this to a student so you just say okay everybody listen mm-hmm. what are the sounds that you hear 
hear the heater going on. I hear like the vibrating of a phone. I hear this. And so you just concentrate on hearing. And I so I, I took it from him and I said, OK, everybody, look in the room. Where's the light? Look where the light yeah. source is. So I, I totally have like adapted his his ideas to work with light. And because yeah. really ultimately filmmaking, light and sound. Yeah. That's it. Do you like to bring in lighting equipment or do you like to sometimes use from the lighting sources that you see in we the do room? both you know okay. we teach both but i prefer my own work i prefer natural light i think that it's a little bit more of a challenge to yeah. figure out how to tell your story yeah. you know i think for photography and this is the one thing i tell photography students is that you actually your job is harder than a filmmaker yeah. because filmmakers can rely rely on sound and narration and language and all of these things and to some extent you could if you're you know advancing in fine arts and you're using text to add to your things but really you know you've got to get that right in one second with the snap of your shutter and you've got to tell the story yeah in one or two frames right challenging okay so last thing so you were the first inclusion officer at american university which yes. is awesome uh, i guess two-part question what does inclusion really mean right we could say oh we have to include everybody what does that really mean and then part two which i can come back to this after as well what do you think are added steps we could take in our industry sure so i think when we talk about inclusion people just tend to think well it's like well i want people who are like-minded Right. And so if you're X, Y and Z and I think X, Y and Z, then that means we just need to make sure that we include X and Y and Z. Right. But real inclusion is not that. Mm -hmm. Real inclusion is adding voices that might be A, B and C and maybe in contention with X, Y and Z. And so the challenge of inclusion is how do you make A, B and C and X, Y and Z all feel safe in the same space, even with deferring opinions and beliefs and all of that. So that's what I think real inclusion means. And I think that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of understanding that if a person doesn't believe the same as you, it doesn't make them a bad person. And if there's no amount of you yelling at them or telling them that they're awful or not wanting to work with them on a project or any of that kind of stuff, that's never going to change any hearts and minds, right. right? It's actually getting into the root of where where they think and you might be surprised where you might change your mind and mm -hmm. say, well, actually, I see your point of view and perspective. But this is what, why I think this is for the greater good. Right. You know, and so having discussions. I'm sure you've heard that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anton Scalia were the best of friends. Mm -hmm. But they obviously were polar opposites in, what, in how they approached the Supreme Court and what yeah. they, you know, what they voted on. But that, to me, shows that they really were serious about inclusion in, in certain ways. And so that is an important part of the process. It's not just hanging out with other like-minded people and saying, well, right. we believe in these things, yeah. and so let's just keep pushing this agenda. Yeah. But it's really saying, well, why doesn't everybody else believe in those things? Mm -hmm. And let's hear them out, and let's see like what, what it is, and let's include them enough to make sure that they feel safe in a workplace that allows them to be their true authentic self. Right. The most powerful thing to me in this world, especially today, is two people who are able to have opposing opinions and be friends. Yeah. So that, I think that's just like a superpower. I'm, Absolutely. I, I venture to call it a superpower because it's so powerful when you can say, I think this way and you think this way, but that's not going to change the way I see you. Sure. So I think that speaking with somebody who has a differing opinion only strengthens my own argument. It makes right. me really think about like what a, you know, why do I believe this? And what right. are some examples like that I can give that would, yeah. would help maybe shift that person? But it only, like I said, it only strengthens me in my own 
work or it makes me question yeah. things. I think it's right. just, it's a conversation. Yeah, because I think a lot of people get caught up in the what instead of the why. Yeah, you know, I think we just need to be telling a lot more stories so that like I, that example that I said about the yeah. one rising star becomes the the person that gets to tell the stories right. for that culture or for that population. We need multitude of voices. And yeah. so we need 10 rising stars. So one thing that I think that we all can do is that not be threatened in our own positions. And like our jobs are to help those below us up. And if they get something better than us, that's great. We celebrate their successes. And we want to be able to tell diverse stories and multitude of those diverse stories. Yeah, that's a a big lesson I'm learning as I'm getting older is that a lot of it is about what you're able to pass down and Absolutely. kind of what, who you're able to help. Yeah. This is my first year as a mentor in the um, alumni mentorship program. Oh, fantastic. And at first I was like, do I have anything <laughs> I can use? Absolutely. But then I looked at my failures, my successes. My, I, I was like, I can teach from every single thing that I've done. And I love that you brought up your failure. So I think that's one thing that's fantastic is like, you know, in this industry, mm-hmm. like we are the most resilient people because we face failure every single oh day, gosh. multiple times. Oh Submit to a festival. Nope. Yep. Didn't get into that yep. one submitted this, you know, put this grant proposal. Nope, didn't get that. But what keeps us going is our resilience and our belief in ourselves of telling our our stories. That's the thing. Just don't let those bad days let you down. Just keep being resilient and your story will be told. I've been my biggest cheerleader and my worst enemy. And I'm trying to lean more to the biggest cheerleader side. And you just got to really push yourself and believe in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And take risks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll just say say this one thing, though. One, One of the things that I had grown up going to art music my parents were very different immigrant parents. They, mm-hmm. um, you know, they supported the arts incredibly. And um, and they, whenever we would go s- some city or someplace, first stops were always the art museums. That's awesome. And so I grew up looking at all these names on the walls, and I never saw anything that looked like mine. And yeah. so being able to be as part of the Smithsonian and seeing my name there and then telling a story of my, uh, my Muslim, Bangladeshi-American artist, activist, climate justice warrior friend using traditional material that South Asians would recognize and seeing that on the walls in the Smithsonian, you don't know the power of what that just like somebody walking by could do and see. Yeah. And you may never know that. But like I know walking by the halls of of artwork and seeing something that I could grab onto and saying that could be me one day and now it's me one day. It's about the people from your culture being able to see that. So maybe, yeah, maybe I or somebody else walking by wouldn't be able to recognize that that's the name. But someone who will, that's going to make their day, I think. Yeah. I, I, all the time when I just hear Arabic in a pro, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I yeah, get so excited. Exactly. And I feel like I know them already, yeah. you know, which is like really weird. <laughs> it is. I totally <laughs> understand that. Yeah. It's completely. so funny. I'm like, maybe they know someone. I, I mean, no, yeah. it's, there's no way because uh, – countries are very big but yeah that's awesome thank you so much lena this was an amazing conversation i hope everyone learned something i hope you could take a few pieces of advice with you but anything you'd like to uh end on no just thank you so much grace it's so it's incredibly humbling to see the students when they come back and where they are and how well they've done and so congratulations thank to you, you so on everything. much this is fantastic i love 
getting announcements every like oh that's where they are that's I know fantastic. and I love getting emails from old professors being like you're here now. yeah I'm like yes I'm back <laughs> yeah. but that's great it's been awesome having you if you'd like to check out our bi-weekly episodes dropping on Wednesdays on Anchor Spotify Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts go give us a listen click that subscribe button and if you'd like to support this podcast and the School of Communication go to giving.american.edu to donate now and that's a wrap